Welcome to Lighting Your Way, a podcast featuring exciting, hilarious, heartbreaking, terrifying, and joyful stories of real nurse advocates helping real patients get the best health care. Hi, I'm Nurse Betty Long. Each week, I and one of my nurse colleagues at Guardian Nurses will take you behind the curtain to help you better navigate the healthcare system when you or a loved one is sick or injured. On this episode, we talk with Mary Ellen Murphy, an old friend and coworker from years ago when we worked together at Montgomery Hospital, and now one of our nurses at Guardian Nurses, who has many years of experience in lots of different areas of nursing. Today, though, we address hospice care. Despite getting started in the U.S. in the early 1970s and being paid for by Medicare and Medicaid and most commercial insurances, hospice care is still an underutilized benefit for terminally ill patients and their families. Mary Ellen shares a story, one of her many, to explain what hospice is, what services are available in hospice care, as well as correct some common misconceptions. Welcome, Mary Ellen Murphy, old pal of mine, to the Lighting Your Way podcast. I, I wanted to make sure that you had your shot at being on the podcast before you began planning your retirement. I know uh, that you have a lot to share with our listeners, so uh, I think we're going to have a good conversation today. Hello, Nurse Long. <laughs> uh, well, I told you I'm not retiring until you retire, my dear, So, although I may regret saying that. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to be here and really happy to be having this conversation. Uh, talking about hospice can be taboo, which has always disappointed me. But giving it some light, like we're doing here, we can only help families and loved ones make better, more informed decisions. Yeah, I, I agree, Mary Ellen. Um, when my mom was diagnosed with cancer in 1982, that was my first interaction with hospice. And I have been a huge fan ever since. But unfortunately, right throughout, I'm sure your career and my career as a nurse, I've seen hundreds of families deal with a loved one who has terminal diagnosis and, and so many of them struggle with the decision to initiate hospice. I, I guess I'd ask, why do you think that is? I'm sorry you had that experience, Betty, but I'm delighted that you had the great hospice experience with your mom. So many families struggle with making the decision to elect hospice for their loved ones. And I believe they have the idea that they have failed somehow in getting their family member better. Or they don't understand what hospice can offer for a terminally ill patient. It's been my experience that a family who is familiar with hospice services readily suggests it because they've seen the compassionate care that it provides the patient and the family, even after the patient has passed. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. So I know we have a lot to talk about uh, before we hear your story, but uh, let's tell our listeners a little bit about you. What, what led you to becoming a nurse? Well, Betty, I often wonder how I ended up being a nurse. I wanted to be an artist and quickly realized oh. that I would never be able to sustain that without a career. <laughs> I did not have any nurses in the family and really had no exposure to nursing other than my, my good friend's mom, who was a nurse. Okay. She was a school nurse and convinced me that I could take any direction in nursing to find my niche. Yeah. After graduating from nursing school, I started working in the typical jobs in ICU and telemetry. And while home on maternity leave, twiddling my thumbs, I got a call from one of my colleagues 
who needed extra help seeing patients in the home. Oh. And that was my introduction to home health, and it stuck. Ah, and we met uh, in 2003 when I was a nursing supervisor at Montgomery Hospital, and you were the supervisor of the home care and hospice division. What, um, what did you enjoy about that role? Well, Betty, 2003. <laughs> it was like 12 years old then. <laughs> anyway, uh, by then, I had been in home health and hospice for about 15 years. Mm. And the best thing about that position was guiding the staff and the newbies in what's involved in the care for the patient in the home. You need expertise in all areas and excellent assessment skills and people skills. But the best part is meeting the patients where they live, so to speak. So it's on their own turf, literally. Hospice was a specialized service at that time, and hospice was a fairly new concept in the USA. Yeah. And I remember we used to talk then about how hospice services were mm -hmm. underutilized by families. And here we are oh, yeah. still talking about it. Um, I read a report recently uh, um, in preparing for this but by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization stating that Americans who receive hospice get an average of only 24 days in the program. Um, and that's less than a third of uh, the recommended service. And nearly three quarters of Americans who receive hospice get less than 180 days. So what's more, 28% of patients receive hospice for less than a week. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I know those statistics are, are staggering. Patients and their families receive too little hospice services for, I believe, two reasons. One is that it can be hard for doctors to estimate how long the patients have to live. And optimism may influence doctors to overestimate, and so they're not likely to suggest hospice services to the patients or the families. The other reason, I think, is that many patients and families are not fully aware of hospice services, mm -hmm. what it looks like when initiated at the right time, and how it benefits patients and families. And it's basically a lack of understanding of hospice it means many families don't know when to ask for it. True. And, and I think that's why we're talking about it today, to provide yeah. more information so the families can be aware of what services are available. Um, our goal on uh, the Lighting Your Way podcast is, as you know, to empower our listeners, to coach them how to be better healthcare consumers, better advocates for their loved ones. And I feel very strongly about educating people about hospice care. Um, before we start, though, let me ask you a little bit more about your career. Um, you've had lots of other clinical experiences, um, and much of it has been spent working in hospice and palliative care. What is it about this area of nursing that you love so much? Honestly, Betty, I don't know how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, dare I say, destiny. Uh, evolution into the role, which started with one patient, mm -hmm. and it blossomed. I viewed it as a tremendous privilege to care for a patient on their journey and to be there to support them and their families at their time of death. How yeah. special is that? Yeah. And, and, you know, I've always believed ever since uh, my mom was a patient in hospice that hospice nurses are a very special kind of nurse. Um, so in, in your opinion, what, what makes a good hospice nurse? Mm. Well, they're clinical experts. And they assist in promoting comfort, reducing pain, and supporting end-of-life care to terminally ill patients. 
A good hospice nurse listens and tends to patients' emotional and spiritual needs as well. So it's someone that's well-rounded and committed. It's almost like a ministry. Hmm. Okay. That, that, makes, that makes a lot more sense, you know, and kind of a good uh, visual, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. g- give me a good definition of hospice care. I know there's a lot uh, of misconceptions, but how do you define hospice care? Okay, so when a patient or their family realize that a patient no longer benefits from life-sustaining treatments, they have the option to elect hospice care. It's often provided in the comfort of their own home, and with a physician's order to elect hospice, they receive a visit from a registered nurse to assess. They evaluate their changing symptoms, make recommendations for comfort measures, The patient also receives services from a home health aide who's specially trained in assisting with the personal care of the patient, Mm -hmm. especially the terminally ill patient. Mm -hmm. And in addition to these services, the patient may also have chaplaincy services. Mm -hmm. Social workers will assist in obtaining community supports and discuss financial concerns. They often help also with assisting in funeral arrangements. And then there's volunteers who are complete volunteers who are specifically trained to be with these people, these patients. And they may sit with the patients, read to them, or just provide companionship. There's other therapies, too, that can be brought in with for music therapy, massage therapy, Reiki. It's all about promoting a patient's physical and emotional comfort. Yeah, I... I um... I noticed, though, in that definition, you never mentioned the quantity of time. Uh, And I know that that's a big issue. There is a qualification of time, isn't there? Yeah, patients um, have to be certified to have, by a physician, to have at least six months or less to live. Mm. And when they have that kind of prognosis, um, you know, some people are thrown by that prognosis. But what I often say to patients and their families is, you know, would you be surprised if your loved one were to pass within the next year? And they'll they'll look at me straight in the face and they say, oh, I wouldn't be surprised at all because this is what's going on. This is how sick they are. So it kind of puts it a little bit into perspective. Now, you know, when they talk about that six-month prognosis, sometimes a patient lives longer than six months on hospice. And that's because the hospice staff, they're in there and they are combating their symptoms and they're having better symptom control. So they're improving. It doesn't last long, but, um, you know, they're feeling so much better. But um, when a patient lives more than six months on hospice, the nurse just doesn't come out and they don't, just don't conti- discontinue hospice. They, <laughs> they'll evaluate them daily um, for, to see if they're declining. It's, it's very specific. Okay. Yeah, I, I, um, I can't imagine. Oh, sorry. Six months. Bye-bye. <clears throat> yeah, six months in a day. That's yeah. it. Okay. You know, yeah, now um, it doesn't happen. So, um, so let's get to your story, Mary Ellen. Uh, tell uh-huh. us about uh, how you're going to tee this up. Okay, so this is a relatively recent story. Uh, it involved a woman with whom I met in October, and she was a 49-year-old wife of a building trades worker 
working full time, who was complaining of some acid reflux and a little trouble swallowing. She had gone to the GI doctor, had lots of tests, blood work, ultrasound, but then was scheduled for an endoscopy. So um, explain uh, what an endoscopy uh, is and why it was needed in uh, your patient's case. Sure. So an endoscopy is a procedure performed after the patient is sedated. A small lighted tube is passed through her mouth and down the esophagus in down the esophagus, or we call sometimes the stomach tube. Mm-hmm. The endoscope, which is the tool that the physician uses, um, has the ability to allow the physician to view the esophagus and inspect for suspicious areas and get biopsies or samples to test these areas. Okay. The procedure only takes about 15 minutes, but for my patient, this was the test that would provide some confirmation as to what was going on in her GI tract. Okay. Right. So um, thank you for that. Did you meet her uh, after her endoscopy or was that before? Well, yes, actually, I called her right before she was going to go have it. And she had lots of questions about it. And then I answered her questions. And I told her that I would check in with her later after the endoscopy. At that time, she also told me that she was very worried because she had a favorite uncle who had died of esophageal cancer many years ago, and she seemed to recall that he had the same symptoms she was having. Uh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. what, what kind of questions did she have? Well, the doctor had explained what he was going to do, and I could tell she knew that, but since she was so young and never even had a colonoscopy, um, much less surgery, she didn't even know what to expect in terms of the anesthesia. You know, you can't assume anything. Hmm. I assured her that this is called the twilight anesthesia because it's not intended to knock you out, but to put you in a state of relaxation that the doctor could easily pass that rubber tube down her throat mm-hmm. to see what he needed and to get the needed um, biopsies. Um, so, um, and I told her that he'd likely be in and out in minutes, and then she's going to wake up in the recovery room. Right. Um, she actually said that that was the best sleep of her life. <laughs> oh, so many people say that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Did, did she know that they would be, uh, that the doctor would be taking uh, biopsies of her GI tract? Yes, the doctor had explained they'd be taking biopsies, but she thought the results would be available immediately when she woke up. And I explained that while doctors can eyeball the tissues around the inside of your stomach, it was important to wait for the biopsy results, and they would likely not be available for a few days. Um, Marion, tell us why that's important, would you? Well, biopsies or samples that the doctor may get checks for abnormal cells or tissue growth needs to be thoroughly examined, it's sent to a lab, the tissues are placed in a culture dish for a few days to see if bacteria or viruses grow, and this helps get the diagnosis. When the patient knows what to expect with timing of important results such as these, they're likely to understand and not perceive it as a delay in care. Um, And that really causes increased anxiety when they think that um, people are not doing what they need to do for them. Right. So I always let my patients know how long it will take ahead of time. Yeah, that, that's a good practice, Mary Ellen, because especially when it comes to waiting for biopsy results or even test results. I know that I have supported a lot of patients who tell me that, you know, I haven't heard back, so everything must be okay. And, <clears throat> and I always caution them that 
No news does not necessarily mean good news. No news <laughs> means right. no news. So don't yeah. assume, as you said, that because you haven't heard back about your test or biopsy result that everything is okay. I think whether the result is good or not so good, you deserve to know the results of the test. Excellent information, Nurse Long. Thank you. Sadly, as it turned out, my patient was diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus. Oh. Barrett's esophagus was named after an Australian thoracic surgeon named Norman Barrett. Oh. Didn't Barrett also often presents with frequent heartburn. Uh, when someone has Barrett's, the risk of development of esophageal cancer is significantly higher. Why, uh, why is that? Well, I want to be clear. Even though the risk is small, even in people who have precancerous changes in the cells of their esophagus, and most people with Barrett's will never develop esophageal cancer, but over time, when you have any type of chronic issue, and in this case in the esophagus, the tissues of the esophagus change and can over time trigger a change in the cells to become cancerous. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and uh, your patient? Well, besides confirming that she had Barrett's esophagus, the news was not good. The biopsy results came back and confirmed that she also had esophageal cancer, just like mm -hmm. her uncle. So you can imagine her whole world changed that day. Oh, I, I, I imagine it did. I, I imagine it did. What, um, <clears throat> what happened then? Well, given her treatment options, she elected to have surgery and chemo. And she was a trooper through all of it, all five months, my goodness. However, last week, when we had met with her doctors and my patient was told her cancer was growing, despite all the treatments. Were you, you were with her when she got that news? Yes, thankfully. She had had the scans done prior, and this was the appointment to review all of them yeah. and to re review whether the treatment was working or not. Imagine that. She and I have been keeping in touch as she continued her recovery from surgery and then the chemo journey. Um, and we had candid, lengthy conversations about goals and treatments and quality of life since I had met her in October. Throughout the course of her treatment, she and her husband were always optimistic, but very realistic as to her prognosis. Wow. Even at 49. Yes. Um, and, and was hospice brought up by the doctor when she was told that the treatment was no longer working? You know what? Yes, Betty. But she really wasn't in the place to listen. I think that happens a lot when a physician delivers that kind of news. Yeah. Patients have been fighting and fighting, and then they find out the cancer is winning, right. and they can't pivot quickly enough to talk about hospice care oh. or to even absorb what am I going to do next. Right. I mean, that's absolutely understandable. I, I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. We left that exam room and headed out to the waiting area where we sat down. It was myself, the patient, and her husband. And I could tell her head was spinning. Her husband was so quiet. And I said, is there anything you want to talk about? You know, what can you say? And she said, yes, I want to talk about hospice. Wow. In our earlier conversations, we had talked about the hospice philosophy, and she remembered that there would be support for her and her family at the end of life. I mean, we talked about it months ago, but she remembered. Um, but, think, but thinking about it now, 
she always wanted to be able to make the decisions in her care. Mm -hmm. So to me, knowing that the treatments were not working, she wanted to understand what hospice was. I imagine, Mary Ellen, that was a difficult conversation. A lot of times it can be. But you know what? Not this time. It is, but not, not, it wasn't this time. You know, I admired her clarity for what she wanted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how did you continue to help her? I shared with her a few different hospice organizations, um, both for-profit and non-for-profit. Uh, we've come a long way since the days that I started in hospice, and there are hundreds of hospice providers, and that can be a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah, I, I imagine it would, but explain a little further. Well, sometimes there are so many choices, it's overwhelming for someone who doesn't know how to weed through the information. You know, I, I, I know there's a lot of information on the internet, um, but where would you suggest that somebody get started to find more information out about hospice? <laughs> Plenty of information, boy, I'll say. Type in hospice in Google and you get 63 million results. Oh, I don't know about you, but I don't have that kind of time. Neither does a sick patient or family member. Oh. I suggest starting at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. It's mm -hmm. www.nhpco.org. And I'm going to repeat that, www.nhpco.org. This is a wonderful organization that has tremendous resources, and that's a good place to start. Yeah, sounds. Yeah, that's where I had started to research uh, when I was preparing for this. Um, so, how is your patient doing now? Well, Betty, she did choose hospice services to be provided in her home, and the nurse is visiting a few times a week. And when she needs it, eventually, every day, an aide will come to her home and perform personal care. Okay. Her husband's on board, and her extended family is really stepped up to the plate and they're supporting her and she's receiving in addition spiritual support from the hospice chaplain which she finds very comforting right. her services will increase as her health as her health decreases but for now she's stable uh, and her goal is to remain at home and remain comfortable that's great and and i hope that she does for as long as she can uh, yeah uh, that's the yeah. point right um, all right, right, one more question, Marielle. There is some misconception, I think, that hospice is not covered by insurance. Can you speak a little bit to that? Well, hospice is a covered benefit under Medicare and Medicaid and most private insurances. Uh, among the private insurers, there may be variations in qualifications and covered benefits, but they usually follow the same guidelines as Medicare. Once hospice services are elected or chosen, it usually covers the use of hospital beds and additional equipment as well as medications and the provision of the skilled services that we talked about in the home, like an RN, an aide, social worker, chaplain, and volunteers. Yeah, I, I th as I said, I think hospice is great, and, and it's like the whole hospice army comes in when you elect That's hospice. right. That's yeah, right. They, here they come. Um, uh, so um, given all that you've shared, uh, and I think this might be a difficult question, but let me ask, if you can um, offer one piece of advice for our listeners who may be at a treatment crossroads or perhaps mm. have been curious about engaging hospice services, what would that advice be? 
Wow. Well, I've said it earlier. The lesson in this story is to know all of your options. My patient shared her anxiety from the very beginning. And as I said earlier, she was optimistic, but realistic. Mm -hmm. After all, she lost her uncle to the same diagnosis. And despite her young age, she planned ahead and made an early decision to choose hospice to provide her support and comfort in her final days. Yeah. It seemed that this was the decision that she had total control of when everything else was out of control. And that's what was providing her peace of mind. That's great. That, that, that's a wonderful story. And I'm, I'm so admire that woman and her husband too, for, mm -hmm. for you yeah. know, kind of agreeing to do it and being proactive. God. Very special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank you for that. Uh, now, let me change uh, gears a little bit, switch gears. Uh, this is our fun question for all of our guests. It's been a year. Our world has been shut down for the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'd like you to answer this sentence. When the world opens up again, I will. Oh, boy. So I will. Well, you know what? I'm going to tell another little story. Quick one. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> you know me. So recently I was visiting with one of my senior patients at home, and it was the first time I had met her. At the end of the visit, she walked over to me, and as I was leaving, she opened her arms, Betty, and gave me the biggest, warmest hug. <laughs> and I hadn't realized it until then that I haven't hugged a patient in over a year. Yikes. Can you, can you imagine? No. And it was I so can't. powerful when I was when I left her home and I was walking down the street to get into my car, I cried. Oh. So my answer to your question is <laughs> I will openly hug my patients when we are allowed. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. There's so much hugging going on. I think. Uh, oh, yeah. There's going to be a lot of hugging. <laughs> <laughs> Several of our colleagues are, are going to be lined up for that. Um, yeah, and we'll great. be washing our hands, of course, in between the hugging. <laughs> you know, I always, I loved in the early days of the pandemic when people were very creative with, uh, I think one grandmom set up a plastic barrier with like, you know, the, her grandchildren come over and hug her. It was very creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. It's, it's powerful. It's very powerful. Yes, it is. It is. I think it is. Um, so thank you, uh, Mary Ellen, for the conversation. I am very grateful to you for sharing your patient's story. And as I said earlier, I'm a huge fan of hospice services. And I think it's important to have conversations like the one we've had today. And I promise to keep talking about hospice and palliative care in future episodes of Lighting Your Way. Um, I trust our listeners will benefit from hearing your story today. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Betty. Betty, it was certainly my pleasure. I enjoyed it too. All right. Take, take care. care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you have any questions that you would like us to address in a future episode, please email us at podcast at guardiannurses.com. That email again is podcast at guardiannurses.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us this week. You can find the Lighting Your Way podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, YouTube, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. You can learn all about Guardian Nurses Healthcare Advocates on our website, guardiannurses.com. So until next time, find some joy in your life, pet all the good doggies and kitties, 
and remember to tell your people that you love them. Take care.